Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. That's the salient thing about having a blue flame, is it does not feel like work for you, and in fact, it gives you energy instead of taking away your energy. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I get to talk with stand-up comic Jen Fulweiler. After becoming a best-selling author and having a hit daily two-hour talk show on Sirius XM, all while raising six children that she had in eight years, no twins, Jen then accomplished in 12 months what takes most stand-up comics 12 years. She had her own headline stand-up comedy show on Amazon Prime. In this episode, we dive into the principles of her new book, which help people identify activities in their lives that create energy that they can then take back to their jobs and families. We also talk about how to design smart risks making the most of any awful situation. For example, she booked a comedy tour, paid for it all herself, and then the world shut down for COVID. And maybe my favorite part of the interview, we also talk about leadership hacks from large families that apply to anyone. Enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Johan Martinez Kalilian, and I'm a proud graduate of the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. Before getting into coaching, I was already a successful motivational speaker and author. But then I wondered, what would it look like to add another layer to my work? What if I added executive coaching to my tool belt? I chose the Meta Performance Institute program because I had a vision for increasing my impact in the world and adding another income stream to my business. Becoming a Novus Global Coach was the perfect complement to my work. I was able to create nine clients in my first three months of coaching and scaled my business into a six-figure practice in 18 months. If you're looking to become a coach or set up your coaching practice to the next level, I highly recommend the certification from the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. To fill out a free assessment on your abilities as a coach and connect with someone who can help you find out if the Meta Performance Institute is for you, check out www.mp dot institute slash now. Jen, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so excited to have you. How are you doing? I'm great and I'm thrilled to be here. I love you guys. <laughs> I know that you don't know us very well, so that, that, that makes me feel really good. <laughs> no, I, I've discovered you guys from us connecting this way and I'm like, oh, we're on the same page. We, we think the same way about everything. You know, that's what the person... So Joseph Thompson from our firm is the one who suggested you and that was his big thing. He goes, Jason, read her book. You're going to resonate with everything she says. And that's really true. And I'll, a full disclosure, so I watched your comedy special on Amazon. I was like, I'm not your target audience necessarily. I mean, it's funny. Funny is funny. And it was very clear that you have a very specific audience that with some of your material you're really reaching out to. But then I read your book and I was like, man, even though your book in some ways is written to the same audience, like it is so relevant and it's a uh, blue flame. So she's, she has several books. The most recent is blue flame. And of course we would have said that at the top. Uh, but, but I want to say at the, at the front, I really recommend it irregardless of whether you're a parent or a mom or any and kind of in that space it is really relevant. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But first, and we were before we started recording, we were geeking out about our mutual love for Galaxy Quest, which also explains for me why I didn't have my first kiss till I was out of college. <laughs> you have six kids. So you you seem to have solved that. Solved it, yeah. <laughs> you solved that problem pretty based on results you you've done better than me. So but I do want to go biographical just for for a second. And one of the first things I want to ask about is you mentioned your dad's this is going way back before you were born. Your dad was a Navy SEAL and actually was 
a special kind of Navy SEAL. And you mentioned how that has impacted your life. I'd love to have you tell our audience about that. Yeah, so he was a Green Beret. He'd be rolling over in his grave at like, Navy SEALs, please. Please forgive me. Yeah, yeah. so he, he was a Green Beret, fantastic guy. Just great, great guy. He passed away unexpectedly a couple of years ago. And I'm an only child. We were very close. But I often thought he had some gene where he just had to take high risks because he was a HALO instructor. HALO stands for high altitude, low opening. So he would jump out of airplanes at night and they would try to look like cargo planes. So the enemy didn't know they were dropping parachute guys out of it. So at extraordinarily high altitudes at night. So basically your altimeter is the, and this was the sixties, your altimeter is the only thing that told you when to open that chute. And I thought, well, so this is just a story of really trusting your altimeter. Because at night in the jungle, you can't see anything. You jump out of a plane into blackness. So he did that. He was also a demolitions instructor. And I've often thought that explains why I do stand-up comedy. Because let me just tell you that standing up in front of a bunch of people, especially when it's not your fans, it's people who don't know you, and trying to make them laugh. When my dad heard that, he was like, that is way scarier than anything I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it's not like you... I feel like a lot of stand-up comics, you know, like Judd Apatow was interviewing comics when he was like 11, you know? And give us a little bit of the history of how you got into stand-up comedy. So I had a daily talk radio show on Sirius XM, and it was solo. I didn't have a co-host or anything, and I didn't do a lot of guests. So it was a lot of me talking. And people who listened kept saying, it sounds like you're doing stand-up comedy. Because I there were times I would riff, because SiriusXM doesn't have a lot of commercial breaks. There were times I would riff for 45 minutes on a subject. And we'd get, uh, my producer would get a flood of emails from people saying, this is so funny, you should turn that into a stand-up comedy special. And then I would get hired to do speeches. And so I would incorporate humor into that. And people would say, that was almost closer to stand-up comedy than a speech. And so it was in 2018, I said, I should just formalize this. I should just start officially doing stand-up comedy. So in a way, I'd been doing quote-unquote comedy for many years before that, but it was 2018 where I decided to change my brand, so to speak. Before then, I think my fans, they didn't know how to categorize me. That Well, she's a radio host, but she kind of writes some books. And if you tried to tell your friends about what I did, they'd be like, well, I don't know. She kind of does a lot of stuff. And I thought, let's just land on stand-up comic because then instantly your friends know what my vibe is and what my tone is and that kind of thing. Well, and that's what I love about it. And I think there's some genius there and also some, and I mean, this is a compliment, some insanity. I mean, you know. Yes, I have right? 100%. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld says that you are as old as a comic as many years as you've been doing it. And I, and I, I hear you that you've been doing it for a long, long time. It's a misnomer to say you've just started doing it. You were doing it on your show. And by the way, your show is no joke. Like it's not like, a, it wasn't like a 30 minute, thing. It was, I mean, two hours a day. Yeah. Two hours a day of you talking without a guest. That is a lot of yammering. Live. No do-overs, you know, it's, and it's live five days a week. Yeah. That is amazing. So that is a ton of reps. Like you're just getting so many reps there. And by the way, so for audience, the one is always kind of unpacking, what does it mean to be a high performer or reinvent yourself in certain things? Notice the things that you're getting reps at. Notice, pay attention to the things that you're doing. And then you talk about this in your book about like, and what are people kind of affirming about you that you do effortlessly that are, it's kind of bizarre to other people. And, you know, people, you listen to people, people started saying, hey, you're more of a stand-up comic than you are a talker. You can do both. 
I hadn't thought of that insight of notice where you're getting your reps in because that that's actually I'm I'm taking notes here in our own interview. <laughs> I, I can imagine your listeners they they've got their notes app out they're taking notes because I think that is actually a really brilliant insight that I'd never articulated. One of the reasons I felt confident doing this massive career switch into stand up comedy I couldn't have articulated this, but I got that famous ten thousand hours. I felt like I had my reps in in a way that I was having to make people laugh for very long periods of time with no do-overs. So I kind of felt like life has been setting me up. I'm set up for this big transition. That's right. And what a transition it is. Like if, you know, watching your Amazon uh, special, which I highly recommend everyone go and check out. I actually didn't, I I have Amazon Prime and I could have watched it for free, I guess. But when I did my Apple TV thing, I rented it. So, so I, there you go. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I'll give your listeners a hack. We just, just, just released it free on YouTube so that anyone can watch it. You don't have to pay anything. So if you Google Jen Fulweiler Naughty Corner, you know, be sure to put my name in there. I think if you type (laughs) Naughty Corner into YouTube, you, you, by the way, I found that you would be amazed at how many products Amazon sells. We found that when people would just type naughty corner into Amazon, really wide, wide variety of products uh, on that, that that company sells. Yeah, so be um, careful. <laughs> but so people can find it now on YouTube totally for free. That's awesome. Yes, yeah, so for sure check that out. And when you watch it, for those of you who are aficionados or who care about stand-up comedy, and I really do, I really love stand-up comedies in our form, you will be shocked when you realize that 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 recording is something that Jen had been doing explicitly as an explicit brand for what twelve months or something. By the time that's crazy, <laughs> well, okay, that crazy. Okay, you're going to love this because we're the same type of person. I I wish I could do a screen share. I have a spreadsheet because I had to ramp very quickly, and I respected the art of stand up comedy. There are some people who do stand up comedy. It, it's not. But I, so I said, no, I love this art. I've always loved stand-up comedy. I am going to do this right. If I'm calling it stand-up, it's going to be real stand-up. I have a Google Doc a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet with conditional formatting. I put every single punchline in my entire set into this doc. Whenever I would go up at, at shows in Austin, I got on every show I could possibly get on from open mics to other people's shows. I would record myself or I'd, I'd have a friend or my husband record my set. And then this is the most painful thing I've ever done. I would have to sit down and watch that video. And I would note how well each punch landed in the spreadsheet. And it it had conditional formatting to color code the results so that at a glance, I could see where my set was. And I truly believe, I truly believe that cut my time in half. I believe that it would have taken me 24 months as opposed to 12 to put that set together if I had not done that ruthless analysis that involved, you know, there were multiple worksheets in the spreadsheet, but it it cut my ramp time in half. Well, and that's what, what I love about that. There's an art and a science to doing something at a world-class level. And I know that we're all in evolution and, you're, and my, my gut tells me that your greatest moments are still ahead of you. And I'm very excited to see where your career is going in that specific space. But I love seeing how the sausage is made. I love unpacking it. In fact, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit because this is kind of apropos for this. So in the book, you talk about the Luxembourg effect. And I think that's what it's called. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And I want you to tell that story for our listeners. I wish I had a better, more eloquent way of setting you up for this. But I want to tell you in advance that the point you made in the book was great. And that's the point that I want you to make for our audience here in a second. But also the story itself, I was like taking notes on how you were designing things for you. And that was equally important to me. So so go ahead and tell us about the Luxembourg effect. Yeah. So I called it the, the Luxembourg lesson. And the, the lesson that I'll tell you, is, so I had recently 
been introduced to this concept, someone suggested that you need to look at your life as a story. And I am a very type A person. I do not deal with failure well. I every, I have to get the gold star every time or else I flip out. And so I had previously walked through life evaluating everything with a success-failure paradigm. Will this be a success? If not, I'm not going to try it. And you probably have heard these studies of people who it's almost a disadvantage if you're successful as a kid in school, if you're you get into the gifted program or whatever, you stop taking risk because you are used to succeeding. And so you don't want to try anything that might not get you the gold star. It's like if I've always gotten A plus. So if I can't get A plus, I'm not even going to try it because I couldn't deal with that. So this friend gave me advice where he said, you need to think about your life in terms of this decision that I'm potentially making. Either way, whether I succeed or fail, would it make a great story? That is some of the most life-changing advice I have ever received. And and you see me going into stand-up comedy shortly after that because I was pretty sure I would fail. I mean, that was an insane decision to make, but I thought, well, that'd be a great story. You know, like, (laughs) I I would rule any dinner party I go to. I'd win that. I'd succeed at that. I'd succeed at the dinner party story if I tried this. So, okay, so that paradigm shift led me to to deal with one of my potentially, this was almost the greatest failure that anyone has ever had in their career. When my first book came out, we my publisher was very, very supportive. And they said, we have X amount of money that we can do for a book tour. So you just figure out what cities do you want to go to, whatever. So I sent out to my fans a form where they put in their zip code. I said, just put in your zip code if you would show up, if I did a book tour there. And then there's this software. It's it's not cheap. Remember that detail. I, I paid for this high-end software that will map zip codes so you can visually see where your fans are. Uh, by the way, I highly recommend this for anyone but who, who's thinking about doing any kind of tour, meet and greet. But with, with a caveat, I'm about to say. So my publisher and I, I mean, this is like the CEO was in these meetings. We're looking at the map and we said, wow, I'm big in Luxembourg. Like it's actually, this is like my second biggest place. Oh oh my gosh. And then things started to make sense. I'm like, you know, there is a university there. It's an English speaking university. And those people there kind of have my vibe. I mean, this is actually all coming together for me. And um, in certain things about my background, I was like, it is very Luxembourg. I, you know what? I'm okay. I'm surprised I didn't know this ahead of time. I don't want to assume our listeners are, are dumber than I think they might be sometimes, but tell us where Luxembourg is. I wish I knew. It, it's a very tiny country in Europe. I think it borders... Oh, I'm not going to be ignorant, but maybe it's near Switzerland. Look, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> tiny. It's yeah. tiny. It's like the size of Rhode Island or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tiny and it's in Europe. And so we had a second meeting about this. And we said, all right, let's all think about this. And we said, you know what? I just have so many fans there that we should probably use the same budget that we would have used for three cities in the U.S. and get me out there because Fullweiler Nation is big. It's big in Luxembourg. I was flexing on my friends so much. I was like, you know, I... I'm definitely still building here in the United States, but guys, I am, I'm big in Luxembourg. My fame there. I mean, I, will I even be able to walk down the street? I I don't know. It's going to be pretty big. We were looking at flights. We had some flights saved. I know what the good hotels are in Luxembourg city because we were that far in the process when I realized this high end, not cheap in software that I had used to map these zip codes did not properly process zip codes that begin with zero. 
which as you know, Connecticut, like places like that in the United States, all their zip codes, Boston, they, they begin with zero. Any guesses where that software put American zip codes that begin with zero? Luxembourg. It put, I don't know, not one citizen of the country of Luxembourg has ever heard of me. No one has ever heard of me in Luxembourg. Every single one of these hits was Connecticut and Massachusetts. I came so close to just imagine me sitting at my book signing table in Luxembourg City, waiting for all the fans to show up, having to tell my <laughs> publisher. Like, I mean, can you even imagine? So my lesson from that was when I was imagining that moment, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people quit after that. They retire to a cave, they change their name, they go into the witness protection program. But I thought, you know what? That would be about the best story that anyone ever has to tell. And so I was actually able to laugh at the whole situation because I thought, okay, this is a great story. Whereas if that same thing had happened a couple of years before, I would have been depressed. I would have felt stupid. And because this was my first book, so I was trying to impress this publisher. I would have, you know, felt dumb. I would have felt like my publisher hated me. Instead, I kind of led the charge on laughing at this. And I, I don't think I've ever heard people laugh so hard on a conference call. So that was in that my life has been like that ever since then. Every decision I make, my question is whether I succeed or fail, would it make a great story? Yeah, I love that. At the firm, we say, what are the things that are worth doing even if you fail? And similar, but I like the story element too, because at least you get some, you have something to show for it. You know, that reminds me, and so actually two things. One is, again, going back to the mechanics of it, I just loved, and maybe this is obvious to everybody else, but I just loved when I was reading that story that you bought a program to help you strategically figure out where your base is to kind of create your, you know, your Seth Godin 10,000 fans or whatever it is you're up to. And like, again, like I just like how intentional you are about designing something that most people, when they think of, like, look, I live in LA. So thousands of people every year move here thinking that all you got to do is be really attractive and then people will find you. You know, and I feel like you are a great example of a person who's architected your success. You've got the talent, but you've created a scaffolding, an intentional scaffolding to position yourself for the highest probability of success. And, you know, no matter what people's domains are, whether you're an engineer or you're an artist or, uh, you know, leading a CEO or whatever, to be thinking about how can you architect and create the best possible opportunity for success. Now, going back to failure just for a second, I found this quote, and this, I joked earlier that when I found out you love Galaxy Quest, that's when I fell in love with you. But and that's a little bit of a lie. It was actually because I didn't find that out until a podcast I listened to. But I was reading. Oh, maybe this is another podcast. But I found this quote from you from 2020, and I wanted to read it to you in the context of failure because it's such a human quote. And so, so here it is. It's a little bit. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it says, "I've made some very large bets on live events, and no one see. Of course, no one sees a pandemic coming. And so, like a lot of people right now, again, this is in 2020. I've had to ask some tough questions." So I've been doing funny things on social media instead of planning live events. It's not been easy. And I've had plenty of moments of lying awake at night and being like, is my career over? Did I place the wrong bet? Have I caused us so, so many financial problems that we won't ever recover from this because you know we didn't see a global pandemic coming? So I want to take our audience to that moment when you're stepping out of... Or you're, re, kind of, you're not kind of, you're redefining your brand. You're leaning hard into stand-up comedy. You're experiencing success. And then you take this huge bet, again, having done this for 12 months, to do a tour, and then the pandemic happens. And can you tell us what that was like? And can you tell us what your journey has been like through that? Yes. So that's another, uh, you know, this whole model I have of would it make a great story, just going for it. And, and I think another lesson that you'll hear here is I am such a big believer in trusting your gut, even when it makes 
no sense. And and that is one thing that you do get with years of experience. I would imagine it, it's harder to trust your gut at 22 than it is when you're decades on from that because you don't know. You just haven't had enough life experience to form your gut instinct in, in certain areas. Uh, and so that does get easier as life goes on. And so at, at the beginning of 2020, I made the decision to leave SiriusXM. I probably wouldn't have if I didn't have six kids, but I knew I wanted to do stand-up comedy touring full-time. So that where my special came from, I booked my own tour with my personal credit card. We would have been in bankruptcy if I hadn't sold tickets. And I didn't know that my fans wanted stand-up comedy from me. So there was a real chance that I, I thought it was 60% chance this would work because you have to be the theaters ahead of time. The theaters have never seen this. They, they thought it was a prank call. My best friend and I, we just would type, you know, rent theater in Columbus, Ohio and cold call them at, at like a 700 capacity theater. And we would call and say, hey, could we rent your theater? And they'd be like, who are you with? Who's your promoter? And I was like, what's a promoter? I don't know. So <laughs> we had done that. It, it was a crazy, that's, that's the riskiest thing I've ever done. I think was booking that tour myself on my personal credit card but it had been a great success. And so I felt like I was getting signs that it's it, this is all working out. This is, it's meant to be. I actually made more in one season of touring almost than, than I was making at the radio. So I thought, okay, this, this financially, I mean, this is just a good decision. Because I have six kids, I had booked that whole tour and done it while doing a two hour live daily solo national radio show. But that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that was too much. And that, that is, that's one of the big things I say about balance is it's a friend of mine analogizes it to being on a, on a balance beam, like a gymnast, you, you go too far one way, you go too far the other way. I was too far in the work zone in that season. So I had to make a decision between radio and stand up comedy. And I made the decision and I hadn't quite told my bosses yet when I started hearing about this COVID thing. And I said, oh, well, that's whatever. That's not, it's not going to come to the United States. And then it came to the United States. And I said, okay, okay, we might need to shut things down a little bit, but touring will be back in the fall, fall 2020, but big stuff happening in fall 2020. And so I had this decision to make. I had decided to quit my job. I had decided that stand-up comedy touring was what I should do, but I was also hearing a lot about this COVID thing but just for reasons to not burn bridges at the radio, it was kind of a now or never thing. I couldn't push it back six months. And so, you know, feeling like my dad jumping out of airplanes at night, I said, all right, I'm, I'm still going to quit this job and I'm going to trust this works out. And it sort of didn't for a long time. Yeah. Um, but here's a very, very interesting thing. So financially, it was terrible. I'll, I'll just be upfront about that. It was a horrific financial landscape. However, because I couldn't tour, and then I kept, kept, kept not being able to tour, I, per the quote that you just read, I, I thought my career was over. But then I really started thinking and getting calm and reflecting, okay, let me get myself out of panic mode. What can I do? I'm sure you guys give this advice to your clients. Like, what are the things I can control? What are the things I cannot control? What advantages do I have in this situation? And I thought, well, I, I do have a lot of social media followers, and I like writing comedy. I'm good at writing comedy. So I started doing social media sketches and it seemed silly. It seemed like a dumb thing to do, but it was fun. I mean, I did enjoy, I have kind of an immature side of my personality. It was fun. So I was just putting them out there. The first few kind of didn't go anywhere, but then I had some overnight millions of views. Like, And then I had another one that was written up by 
CNN, ABC News, Good Morning America put it on their homepage, Fox News, Newsweek. I mean, I can't actually think of a news outlet that did not cover that sketch. So this starts happening. And I got on the radar of major talent agents. Like, And long story short, in April of 2021, I signed with United Talent, who represents pretty much anyone who's anyone in comedy. Jim Gaffigan, Jeff Foxworthy. I mean, you name name a comedian you've heard of, they are probably with United Talent. They are in LA-based, Beverly Hills-based. They are the top agents. And then through them, they set me up with this legendary manager, just a top guy. He has made the careers of some of the top people who are in the industry. He he, He was part of a team that really did some amazing stuff with those guys. So now... I ended up signed with this top manager, the top talent agency. I mean, every comic, their dream is to be with UTA. None of that would have happened if I, I would have just kept touring in obscurity with my little fan base if I hadn't had to go to social media and prove that I know how to get an audience outside of my little core fans. That is why UTA was interested in me. What if one call could change what you once thought was impossible into a reality? Novus Global is offering you an exploration call with one of their world-class coaches to explore what you as a leader and your team are capable of. Novus Global is an elite executive coaching firm that works with multi-billion dollar companies, professional athletes, nonprofit leaders in faith and government, all to create teams, companies, and communities that go beyond high performance. Book your call right now, Go to novus.global forward slash now. You know, I know that a lot of people, the financial impact of the pandemic, for a lot of people, it's kind of just now hitting them. So I just want to say to anyone who feels that sense of feeling lost, who feels like it, you know, everything might be over, stick with it. Stick, just keep keep coming back, look at what you do have. What do you have in this situation and put all your energy into that? And you might end up with something really incredible on the other side of that. Yeah, and honestly, that story is so inspiring. And when the pandemic happened for us, we started doing all these free webinars with all of our clients with their employees, inviting them to ask the question, how can I use this to where it becomes the best thing that ever happened to me? And obviously with death and things like that, there's some caveats to that. But generally speaking, in the work domain, and you are a living example of that. How can I make this the best thing that ever happened to me? How can I do do what I can do? And to pivot into content versus touring, that's a really, really fun story. So a fact about you that you've dropped twice, and this is going to become relevant in a little bit, that we may not have mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which is that you have six children. And again, where I live in LA, if you're married, that makes you kind of weird. Right. <laughs> um, the fact that you have six and you, did, and you did six in how many years? Six and eight years, no twins. Yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. And the reason why that's relevant, by the way, we're going we're gonna to talk about like leadership hacks and energy. And what I want to do is I want to start talking about your book, Blue Flame. And just real quick to set this up, can you talk a little bit about where the idea of Blue Flame uh, came from? Yes. So when I was in the middle of having six babies in eight years, I spent 10 years with three kids in diapers at once. Because when when one kid would finally get potty trained, we'd have another baby. It was in the middle of that time, which was, you know, fun and wonderful, wonderful memories. But it was difficult. No lie. I am an only child and my husband is an only child. So we had no, I didn't even have friends who had big families. To this day, I don't know what I'm doing. I I told someone the other day, I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about babies. They're uh, total, total confusing to me. 
And they were like, you had six. I was like, well, right. That's what gives me the expertise to, to tell you. I can tell you with authority. I don't know anything about babies. And so that was a, that was a tough, it was a tough time, even though it was a, a beautiful and wonderful time. And so I had desired to write a book. I'd always considered myself a writer. I dreamed of writing a book. An opportunity came up to write a book. And I, I was connected with an agent who was a very, very good agent. And I didn't want to miss that opportunity. But what everybody said is, Jen, you shouldn't, you shouldn't add this. Don't add any. Why would you add any work to your plate? You know, we, we had a tight budget, but my husband was able to get, you know, he, I didn't have to, I didn't absolutely have to work, which was fortunate. I was appreciative of that. So they said, look, if you don't have to work, like, why would you do this? Why, why on earth would you add anything to your life? And I, I kept not being able to answer that. And then finally, I was introduced to this concept, which explained everything. When you encounter your blue flame, it is some quote unquote work that you're meant to do that. And I put work in air quotes. It could be visiting elderly people in the nursing home and hearing their stories that listening could be a blue flame. So this does not have to be paid work, but it is something that you add to the world that was not previously there before. So that's what I mean by work. And it gives you energy when you do this. It does not detract from your energy. And that was the aha moment that finally let me explain to people what this concept is, that it didn't feel like work to me. When I would spend my kids' entire nap time working on that book and writing and facing big challenges, how do I make this chapter better? My agent says, this this is a, a terrible first part of the book. Now I have to rewrite it. Those challenges gave me more energy to go change three diapers, to figure out something for dinner when all the kids were picky eaters. I had more energy to encounter my life and to love my family than if I had not had that project on my plate. That's the salient thing about having a blue flame is it does not feel like work for you. And in fact, it gives you energy instead of taking away your energy. And that's so good because you know we have, I think right now we have around 250 clients in eight countries and they're all high performers, like they're all doing their thing. And I think oftentimes high performers are looking for that edge that, and it's not necessarily like a competitive edge, but they have this appetite to do more, but they have a fear that they're not going to have the energy for it. And when I was reading that for you, I was thinking there's something there. There's something really special there because we're not, I want to reiterate the fact that you said, we're not saying that like you're an engineer and you read Blue Flame and then you quit your job to become a ballerina or whatever. <laughs> this is... A, fun though. But yeah, that's super cool. Like a bunch, of, a bunch of engineers, you know what? I bet it'd be well choreographed. Right. <laughs> They'd have a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, you know, it's not like that. It's... There are pockets, maybe even like spiritual pockets of energy that are available to you like oil. And then you can go mine for them. And when you find them, you can then, then it has a positive impact on everything else that you do. And just to say this, and this is something that Amanda, our director of Novus Global Family would agree with, but I think especially for women who oftentimes give a lot of time to the home, there's this thing like, that's the only place where I'm allowed to have energy. And what I love about you as an example for women leaders out there is that you can have other things outside of family that actually enhance, you actually bring it back to you and your family and your family's actually happier because you're, you have more energy because this thing creates energy. Is that, am I? That is a perfect explanation. And I think that what women need to understand and you know, for listeners who maybe they're not women themselves, but you know what, maybe your sister needs to hear this. Maybe your wife needs to hear this. I think what can happen within my world, the world of women, is that we women will compare ourselves 
to, let's say, the mom who she really, 100% of her waking hours, she is doing stuff in the home. If she is not organizing the backpacks, she is cooking an organic souffle with, from scratch with the, you know, she's out in her garden. And so we think, oh man, that's what, that is the only way to be a mom. That's what good moms do. She, you know, she's cleaning the baseboards. But what we don't realize is many women do have blue flames that they're just in the home. So if your blue flame is gardening, yeah, you're going to look like a super mom because you're always home and you're always, you know, cooking the stuff from your garden. Or if your blue flame is decorating or cleaning, yeah, you, you will be doing more stuff that is directly focused on the home. But the thing is that person is not doing anything differently than me writing my book. We are both using our blue flames. It just so happens, I think some women get more credit for, you know, because their blue flame is something that is naturally domestic. But in both cases, we are finding something that energizes us and makes us excited and makes us want to set our alarm a little bit earlier so that we can go do that thing today. And then we have more energy to share with our families and more love to share with our families. And so for some of us, our blue flame is not domestic and that is totally okay. Yeah, and even I do think this applies to men as well. And obviously men can be involved in, in the home and things like that. But even like in a, men and women at work, you know, like one of my clients I'm thinking of, he's very successful CEO of like a $3 billion company. And, and he's good at what he does and he loves what he does. But also there was some fatigue, there was some tiredness. And so him and I did some work where we started talking about, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because in your book, and I think people should go buy it, it just for this section alone, you have a list of questions to help people identify their blue flame. And if you're up for it, I want to ask you some of the questions and we can yeah, kind of wrap, wrap the interview around that. But one of the questions I asked him, which is one of the questions you have in your book is like, what energizes you? And my question was way lazy and your questions are way better. We'll get to those in a second. But, and he, he said, well, I really love listening to podcasts, historical podcasts. Like, well, how often do you give yourself permission to do that? And he's like, well, not very often. And I was like, well, how about you start doing that? And he did. And so then we would hop on a call and I'd say, hey, what's, I would like hold him accountable in some ways. Like say, hey, have you listened to the podcast? And he would, he would geek out. So he likes listening to it and he loves explaining it because he's a teacher but he never gets to teach because his job was leading. And he, and he discovered that by giving himself permission to absorb information and teach it, he, he had more energy for his family. He had more energy for his work and it impacted everything else. So that being said, uh, I'm going to pull up my notes here and I want to go through, I want to ask you some of these questions that you ask your audience. The first one is obvious. And it's kind of the one that I mentioned already, but like list all the times that you felt truly alive. And so Jen, you, with that question, you can elaborate on that if you want. But also, I'd love to hear you lead yourself through that process when you got into stand-up comedy. Yeah, so <laughs> one of the, my answer to this was kind of ridiculous. So when I was, you know, before I wrote this book, when I was just thinking about this in my own life, I was thinking, you know, yeah, what were those moments where I felt like, man, this is, I, I could do this all day. I was meant to do this. And uh, I am a great example of how you should not censor yourself at all in your answer to this. Uh, you, you need to just be really honest about whatever your true answer is. I realized that when I was in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I just got to tell you, I was a master prank caller. I was, I was the best. This was before caller ID. And I, you can hear I have kind of a deeper voice and I always did, even as a kid. I sounded like an adult when I was a kid. Generally, I was not popular at all in my schools, but that was the one time when I will just tell you, I got respect from those kids at my elementary school because I was the best prank caller. And I did feel alive. And this is the kind of thing we try to censor. We're like, well, I couldn't write that down in my journal. Like I couldn't, 
be like, I, I actually loved that. And honestly, I was really good at it. And I felt really alive. <laughs> but that's exactly how you, how you, to use your example of finding oil, that's how you find the oil. That's how you find the gold is to be very, very honest, even if it is not a flattering story. And so I thought about that and I said, okay, well, what, it, what does that tell me? That honestly, it's still kind of a fun memory. Well, that it tells me I like humor. It tells me I like spontaneity and unpredictable situations. It tells me that I'm good at thinking on my feet. That was a key insight for me that one of the reasons when I tried to get my friends to get in on it, they just didn't enjoy being on the spot and having to say something funny in the moment when it's high pressure. You know, your five elementary school friends are standing around watching you. This thing is on speakerphone. But I realized I enjoyed that. I like that pressure. I like being funny in high pressure moments. So that was, I I really recommend that to everyone. Be very, very honest about the times that you have felt alive because the prank call realization led me, I was already in radio at that time. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. But when I was starting to think about stand-up comedy, I thought, you know, that it's kind of a similar landscape, the the prank calling I did to to stand-up comedy. It is, and it's and it, not only do you love a humor, but you love verbal humor. Yes, yeah, you're right. That's another, right. yeah, it shows you that I'm very verbal, like as opposed to physical comedy, you know, like someone falling down the stairs or something. Yeah, I'm more cerebral, verbal. Yeah, that's a great insight. Yeah, that's fun. Another question, there's, there's a list of like seven, and we're just going to touch on a few, but another one you had, which I really liked was, what is something that you love to do that other people think is crazy? Or even, and you had this amazing, in one interview I found, you had this amazing James Clear quote And I would totally wait if you wanted to pull that up. Oh, yeah, actually. I have a copy of my book. Hang on one second. I will. It is so good. That was like a mic drop quote when you read that. And you know what it's similar to? There's a, I think Howard Thurman is his name. While I look it up, there's a similar quote that says, when you're trying to figure out what what you're supposed to do, have the book, found it, figure out what makes you come alive and go do that because the world needs more people who have come alive. What James Clear was saying, and it was on a, I guess it was on his podcast or something, but it, do you remember the, the gist of it? I think it was that he was saying- It was suffering. It was about suffering. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Where is an area of life where it, it basically, it doesn't feel like suffering to you, but other people would consider that suffering. That is probably your calling. And I would say we can, maybe you can put it in the show notes or something, because that that is really a quote worth hearing. And I would say that, you know, I, I gave quite a few things in the book for people to consider for finding your blue flame. But honestly, I really think you can just do that one. Name the area of life that you are surprised to hear that your friends would not want to do this. You're like, because here's the thing. People often miss finding their blue flame, their calling, because they think it's obvious. They're like, well, yeah, obviously everybody wants to do this. Like with me, with stand-up comedy, because of the way I'm wired, it really is tempting for me to think, well, yeah, everybody wants to go downtown to a dive bar in front of you know a bunch of 22-year-olds, half of whom are visibly high, and they're glaring at you with their arms folded and you know stand up there for 20 minutes, and you have to stay on stage the full 20 minutes, whether or not it's working and uh, try to make those guys laugh. Everybody wants to do that. And like, and my friends are like, we'd rather die. We would actually literally rather die than experience that. I was like, oh, you know, maybe this is a calling. And, and I remember in college, I didn't realize I had a, a blue flame 
for writing because I thought, uh, I remember a whole spring break, my roommate was out at the beach, you know, fun in the sun, doing fun things with her friends. I spent the whole spring break in my dorm room in darkness, just writing. I, I didn't, it's not like I had a publishing deal or anything. I was just working on a novel and I spent 12 hours a day on it. And I remember pitying my roommate. I thought that's, that's so sad that she's out with that sand, you know, getting in her sandals and she's probably getting sunburned. I just feel so bad for her. And I feel so self-indulgent that I got to stay in a dark room for 12 hours a day writing during spring break because that's what everybody would like to do for spring break and how indulgent of me. And I did not realize like, no, that's not what people want to do for spring break. Yeah. that And that's so, so insightful. And by the way, just so I can be authentic, I guess on other podcasts, I've talked about that quote that you've mentioned do what makes the world come alive because what the world needs is people fully alive. I only say this because I know, having read your book and I know a little about you, that, that what I'm about to say is going to resonate with you. Usually I, I drop that line that I say, I hate that quote. But because I, I talk about how like Hannibal Lecter found, was, you know, found life in eating people or whatever. But there's another quote that I really love by Frederick Buechner, who was one of my favorite 20th century writers. And he said, and you, you essentially talk about this in your book. He says, your life's calling is going to be where your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. And that really resonates with me, right? And the word passion means to suffer. And so that connects to the James Clear quote. And I think you're, you know, most people would rather be dead than, than give a speech. And you do that for a living. And it's fun to see. So if you're listening to this, ask yourself that question that she's inviting us to ask, which is, what's the suffering that you really enjoy that other people would just rather die than do? And that's a good sign. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that if like doing heroin makes you come, like maybe don't do that. <laughs> I think an interesting way to to think of it is the phrase coming alive. If you're adding darkness to the world by being in a drug haze or by eating people, you know, in the case of Cannibal Lecter, you're not really alive. You are not creating anything. You're not, because the sort of, the, in a way, the definition of being alive is to create, to add to the world. So if whatever you are doing is subtracting light and love from the world, then you might say you're alive, but you're really not. So I, that might be an interesting spin to put on that quote. No, I appreciate that. And I and I wasn't planning on going here, but I since I have a stand-up comic here, comedy is notorious for being dark. Yeah. And not the entertainment. I always lament so much that people who, who make so many people happy privately are in so much pain. And I think some of it's medicinal in terms of like they use comedy as a, as a way of healing. But also sometimes I think that art can exacerbate the suffering in interesting ways. And so, you know, you like... Jim Gaffigan and others are a clean comic, and I appreciate dirty comics as well. So do I. <laughs> yeah, but I think you make an interesting point in terms of what does it mean to be fully alive, and I think that oftentimes comics are so close that they're being creative, but they're still suffering so much. And I, you know, I, I think just I always want, and maybe someday you and I can have another conversation around how do we invite comics into more more life giving ways of being creative. Because I think that you found a way to do that. Because I think your process is really different than a lot of people where a lot of their process is almost like a form of self-harm. Like, you know, and I know you and I are both fans of Elizabeth Gilbert. And she's got a great TED Talk where she talks about how artists kind of assume that to be a great artist, you have to suffer. Right. But not, not like suffer like in a, in a transformative or redemptive way, but suffer like in a masochistic right, murder. Right, like it right. You have to be miserable every day. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I think again, you're a great example of how that doesn't have to be true. Now, actually, let me let me ask now. Can you talk a little bit about your process? Like, how do you 
Where do you get your material? I mean, obviously, your life is embedded with material with six kids, and that's a big part of your 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 thing. But like, what what's your creative process from idea to delivery on the stage? Well, I'll just be transparent. I'm still in the tortured artist phase. I am miserable a lot in my work. <laughs> I'll just I'll be honest about that. But I'm working on that. I've started a new kind of therapy. Have you heard of this therapy where you tap yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I started that and it's actually really, really helped me a lot not be a miserable, tortured artist and, and make the process fun. I have previously been the type of person who didn't exactly enjoy the creative process because I would judge everything I wrote down. I would think, well, this is terrible. This is not funny. I have no talent. There are no ideas left every day, the the drama. And my husband is that he's not a creative. And so he would always just sit back and just kind of laugh. It's like, wow, it must be very difficult to have your personality type. Um, <laughs> but I'm working on that. Yeah. And my what my process is ideally, and this does not always work out well every week, but what I try to do is I put on, you will see if you look at my calendar, you'll see blocks of time that say AMH, meaning airplane mode hours. And and I actually came to this idea when my sketch that went most viral, it got me 10,000 new Instagram followers in one day. I wrote that sketch while I was on an airplane and I decided as a creative decision not to buy the Wi-Fi. So nobody could talk to me. There was, didn't matter what emergency could be played. Nobody could get in touch with me because I was 30,000 feet in the sky and forcing myself to just write comedy that whole time. Even when I was bored, even when I felt like I was done, I did not let myself quit. And it was at the tail end of that process, right as the plane was descending, that I came up with my best idea. And Seinfeld talks about this. He's done, he's done some great interviews recently where he talks about his writing time. He did it seven days a week. And this was, I think, before we had phones that went on airplane mode. So life was airplane mode back then. But he would, I guess, you know, maybe maybe put his answering machine on or whatever you do back then. And he would just set aside time where he'd say, for the next hour and a half, I am writing comedy and I'm not doing anything else. And I will not get up, even if I feel like I'm out of ideas, even if I feel like this is all stupid. This time is this time. And I have to sit here and and sit in it. And so that's what I try to do. Now, does that actually happen every week? Currently, no, but it, it is very effective when I actually do it. So then talk to me, because going back to the Blue Flame, the you mentioned how the, it creates energy and it's so much fun. And then, of course, there's also suffering. And probably those two things are usually right next to each other, the suffering. you know, I mean, I would imagine, I don't have kids, but I imagine that kids are like that. There's so much your greatest joy, but it's also the greatest pain or whatever. I have nephews, but it's not even remotely the same thing. I take them out, I give them candy, I send them home. Yeah, <laughs> That works. So then about the comedic process, what are the little drops of energy that then you take back to yeah. your family and all that? That is an important point because I think sometimes people think, well, this must not be my blue flame because I don't enjoy every single second of it. And that's where that James Clear quote comes in about the suffering that you were meant to do. Even in my worst moments with comedy, I know deep down inside, I'm like, yeah, I was meant to do this. And I yeah. say I'm going to quit. And I, you know, I, I have the dramatic artist straight. I mean, that's like a Tuesday for me, me getting dramatic. But I know I'm meant to do this. And, you know, it, it, that is always there. That knowledge is always there. And so the, the things that keep me going are just the wins. When you make a tough crowd laugh or when, or when even if you're not performing, you just write something down and you look back and you say, oof, that's good. That's good. That's good. I like that. That's going to work. I like that. Or of course, if you put something on social media and it goes viral, 
And those moments keep you going. Those wins keep you going. And, and every day you wake up and you think, maybe today I will get one of those wins where I see my blue flame in action. I connect with that moment that I was meant to do this. And that will get you through the hard times. Yeah. One of the things we talk about in our firm is like, what makes you do the happy dance? Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. And those little jolts where you're like, you can't help it, but you kind of burst with joy. I'm curious, do you ever, are you ever like talking with your kids or talking, or I mean, I guess it could be anybody talking with your husband or, and of course, anyone out in the world is not your immediate family. And you say something funny and then you, you light up and you're like, oh, I can use that or I can get five yes. minutes out of that. Yes, that happens quite a bit actually. Right, and that's super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next thing on your list of questions, again, going back to the blue flame things, I regressed a little bit. But uh, I really love this question. You said, I'm paraphrasing so you can correct me. But essentially, it was like, look to the people that you're jealous of to tell you what you're meant to do or what you long to do or where that energy pocket might be. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, 100%. I think this is another one that you could almost do this in isolation and find your calling. When you think about it, think about an area of life that you are utterly uninterested in. Call that to mind. Something that, man, nobody could pay you enough to do that. It is not for you. Are you jealous of anyone who is doing that work? No. Like the example, I, I'm the least outdoorsy person in the world. So there are certain people that I follow on Instagram that are really into their gardens. They are always messing around in the sun and they're getting dirty and they're, they're getting stung by wasps. Like I can't, there, there's no amount of money that could get me to live that life. It is not for me. But I know friends who are very jealous of these people. Their, their Instagram content actually makes them angry because I'm tired of her bragging about her life and saying that the rest of us are inferior. And I'm just laughing. I'm like, who can, who wants this life? This looks so terrible to me. But I see, and, and this has been this way, even before I got into comedy, I would see someone else on Instagram and people are saying, oh, this guy is so funny. He's a comic genius. Immediately, my petty side comes out. I'm like, oh, is he really? Did you even watch his last special? Like, yeah, 10 minutes are good. And that, so when that side of you comes out, that is a sign that you have tapped into an area that you care about. Because if you don't have a blue flame there, if you have no calling there, you couldn't care less if other people are thriving in that field. People can thrive in their gardening life all the time, couldn't care less. But man, I see people thriving in comedy and I get sick. I really have to work on jealousy. Like, well, why didn't I get that success? I work harder than they do. Yeah, so, I love it. But it's great. That can be, you can really transform that. And then you can even work on being happy for those people. That's a journey that I am on. I've made some good progress there to say, hey, I'm, that's inspiring to me that you can have that level of success. I'd, I'd like to go for that level of success too. And maybe we'll partner one day. I, I'm trying to get into that mentality but that first moment you have of anger or jealousy or bitterness or whatever, that is a sign that you have passion there. If you want to make the most of your life, you've got to learn how to manage your energy. And if you want to manage your energy, you have to know what motivates you. That's why Novus Global created a free assessment to help people around the world discover what's motivating them and how to maximize that to accomplish everything they want in life. Novus Global's motivation assessment helps you understand the five different motivators everyone experiences and which of those five are most powerfully affecting you in your life and leadership. This free assessment includes your results and an ebook describing the five motivators and how to make the most of your personalized results. To take the assessment, go to novus.com global forward slash assessment. That's novus, N-O-V-U-S dot global forward slash assessment. It's time you finally created a life that is deeply satisfying and energizing. So go to novus.global forward slash assessment to take our free motivation assessment today. I love that. And I like the, 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 we, the theme of this is kind of about how you transform that. Because even I'll get to the point when I'm healthy 
and your book is helpful for this to tag this. Hey, Jason, you can actually redeem that. Like you can you can take the the jealousy and turn it into something good. And like I think about people who I'm jealous of in the industry, like Tony Robbins or Tom Billu or all these kind of like people who do what I do, but like ten times better. And 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 usually the closer those guys are so far ahead of me that I, I don't I'm not jealous of them. I'm just inspired by them. Yep, it's the people one or two levels up. Yep. And then now I'm starting my best moments. I say, what can I learn from them? What do they know that I don't know? How can I? And then they they it's not competitive. It's like they become teachers. And then I can get to the next level of my video game because they're they know more about the next level than I do because they they're just right there, and I think that's really that's really fun and and I wish people were more. I don't think that people talk about who they're jealous of very often, right? Because we're not supposed to admit that we do that. That's right, and I so I appreciate being able to talk to you about it. Uh, thanks for being my therapist in terms of people, <laughs> people who I'm jealous of. <laughs> And how can I learn from them? You know, and it would be a great exercise. I wonder if you know if you're listening to this to go and whether with your family or your team, whatever, and say who are the people that you're kind of jealous of, and just talk through that and be human for a second. And then how can you leverage that for your success? And let me say, I think there's even another slice you can take on it that when it, before I really stepped into my calling and stopped apologizing for what I do and what I want to do, and and I would actually say I think men and women both struggle with what I'm about to say. I think sometimes we are afraid to admit the level of ambition that is right for us. And I've seen this on both sides. So when I was not doing anything because I thought the quote unquote right thing to do as a mom was not to have any passions, not to only 24 seven, it's all just stuff within the home. I had more of a general jealousy of any women I saw who seemed, they they were just killing it in any way. Even if it wasn't the field I was in, it was like, wow, she got a book deal? Like, man, I, that's that's really annoying to me. And I realized that what I was tapping into there is, look, I'm an ambitious person. I'm type A. I like to fight big, huge, risky battles and try to win them. And that is what makes me feel alive. And it's who I am. And one of the biggest shifts in my life is when I just admitted it and I stopped apologizing for it. And I was like, look, I, I'm just not going to be happy in life if I don't have some massive problem. And what I saw is like, I was causing, uh, totally subconsciously, I would cause a bunch of drama in my personal life because I have this wiring of wanting to fight big battles. And when I just admitted it and embraced it, my personal life got much more peaceful because I was actually living at the level I'm supposed to live at. And so I don't need to be stirring up all these problems in my personal life. And And I want to say this can happen the other way. I know someone who had a very impressive blue chip resume executive all going all the way to the top on the corporate ladder. But when he would see people like his brother-in-law or guys who were out fishing and, you know, they lived in Montana and they, they had a cabin and they were, I don't know, you know, fishing by the stream, he would feel angry about that. Like, look at my lazy brother-in-law, he's out fishing again. And what he realized is he actually had the opposite thing he's not that ambitious of a guy. That's not his thing that he wants to live a simple life in a cabin by a lake, but he came from a family that expected high achievement from him. So that jealousy he had of people living a laid back life helped him tap into, you know, maybe this corporate slog thing is like, maybe this is not who I am. Maybe this is not the tempo of life that I want to live at. So I think that can be a place to start too, is it can help you discover what level of ambition is the right fit for you in life. That's good. Yeah, and using your resentments and jealousies as breadcrumbs to identifying that, the canary in the mind. That's really, really good. All right, so we have to wrap up. Last question, which we could probably spend an entire conversation on. So 
expect me to, to bother you again about uh, coming on again if you're up for, for sure, it. For sure, yeah. So you have six kids. By the way, I think that's an example of a challenge. If there's ever an evidence of a person longing for a challenge, Junior Hubs creating a, a basketball team is uh, very interesting. But I th- with that, I think people who are listening and certainly you know, people who are single with no kids are, are like, how in the world does that work logistically? And as I was reading about you and thinking, man, I bet she's got like life hacks up the wazoo. And one of your chapters is on, on asking for help and things like that. So I'd love for you to hear, and this is not, she's going to talk about, I'm asking her to talk about life hacks from being, having a, fa- a large family. But I think small families can learn from this and single people can learn from this because it's not really about because you have a bunch of kids. It's just learning how to think a certain way about how to be efficient and how to kind of like cheat with your time. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, and you mentioned this being like maybe another book for you someday or something. Like I'd love for you to give us a little taste of some of the life hacks you've learned from being a parent of a large, large family. Yeah, a general principle that I operate by, which is evidently has some traction because my most viral sketches talk about this topic. This philosophy that I have had from day one is that people were not meant to raise children in isolation. When I was in college, I took a lot of historical anthropology courses. So I was steeped in these stories and these just learning about these cultures from different places on earth now, and then also going back 20,000 years of what, what do we know about these human civilizations. And one of the things that, that stood out to me is how absolutely unprecedented the past 100 and especially 60 years have been, if you look at all of human history, I mean, going back, you know, way, 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 way back, it is all people lived in villages. They lived in, and before that, tribes, where if you were a mother, first of all, you were very busy, all that you did not have 100% of your waking hours to play blocks with your kids. I, I always say on my podcast, I say, you know, this paradigm of like, stay at home mom or stay at home dad or working mom, those paradigms didn't exist until like 60 years ago. Everyone was a try not to die today parent. They were all busy trying to get food, trying not to be eaten by animals. And so, first of all, mothers never had time to focus exclusively on their children all day. They were, you know, have you ever tried to wash clothes on a washboard? It takes forever. If And if your kids wanted chicken nuggets, it was up to you to take it from chicken clucking outside your hut to nuggets. That is a very bloody process. That take, it takes all day. And so the first thing is that there is no way that children could possibly have evolved to need 100% of their mother's attention all day, every day. Like we all would have died, like the humanity would not exist. So that is a first principle that I operated with. A second is that because we were not meant to raise children in isolation, when, when you look at all these tribes all throughout human history, the kids kind of ran around in herds. And so the, the kids would have, they'd have the older teens kind of watching them. And if you had a baby, you know, your elderly grandmother or your elderly mother would be living you know, in your hut in the village. So she would be maybe holding the baby while you were mending the clothes or whatever. So I am a big, big believer in having a part of the family's budget set aside for replicating the village. You know, 2000 years ago, we did not need grocery budgets because that's not, that that wasn't the economy. Many people lived on land and they ate off the land. So you didn't used to need a grocery budget because that's not how people lived. But that is, in the modern world, we see that as a necessity. Nobody would say, don't have a grocery, but that's very indulgent. Look at look at how luxurious you're living with, with your fancy grocery budget. That, we take that as a necessity. Well, I think we need a village budget. I think that having 
part-time help is, I mean, there, there are times that you just can't afford it. And I get that, but we should mentally categorize that not as something that rich women do, but something that all women try to afford so that they can replicate the village that they were very much designed to need. And so currently to this day, we live in the same house we moved into in 2007. It was a very inexpensive house. So the house payment was low. It is 1,900 square feet for all eight of us. It's three bedrooms. And best decision we ever made. It keeps, I, I, my kids really hardly ever argue because when you're in a house that small, you have to get along. There is yeah. no choice. The stakes and, are high. And so that was a choice we made. We were in a financial position where we could have done a modest upgrade to the house as people do. That's a normal course of things. We chose to take the money that we would have spent in an increased house payment and use that for childcare help. And I did not feel self-indulgent about that. I did not apologize for it. I did not feel like that made me a bad mom to have a nanny. I looked at it like a grocery budget. Yeah, people did not used to need this expense, but we do now. And it is a necessity, not a luxury. And so those are my two, obviously you can tell, I could talk about this all day, but my two biggest things are, you gotta undergo that paradigm shift of one, children were not evolved to need their parents' attention for 100% of their waking hours or even close to it. And two, having help is actually more natural than trying to do it all yourself. You will get maxed out, you will end up in the red zone and it is not good for your kids. Yeah, and by the way, that at least should be an article or something. Would love to see you get that out into the zeitgeist. And also I think it it easily transfers into entrepreneurialism and leadership and you know the firm you know coaches are a dime a dozen everyone I can't tell you how many times I've been, been driven to the airport by someone who's a life coach you know and, and they always kind of hang up their own shingle and they oftentimes are people who like don't want to work on teams anymore so they quit their team and they start a coaching company by themselves so that they can coach teams which is its own kind of weird thing and so at the firm like we're really passionate about coaches winning together and we hunt in herds we serve in herds we love in herds and we win in herds we lose in herds and there's something really powerful about that. And even like for me, I'm a single guy, and but I'm really fortunate. I have someone come to my place and they help me take care of a lot of the things that a partner would help me take care of. And I'll, I'll do some, right? And so it's just giving yourself permission to team. And then I, I think the pragmatic thing that I never really thought about until you said it is, what things are you willing to sacrifice for? What actual luxuries are you willing to sacrifice for so that you can have your team budget or what you're calling a village budget which you, which is not a luxury, but feels like one in a modern economy. That is very interesting to me, and I'm excited for you to explore that some more. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, people are shocked when they hear the size of my house. But it was a very conscious decision that I said I, I'm not raising these kids alone. I wasn't meant to do it. I need help. And and I had met someone who she's still she's been with us for years, and she was a great fit. And I said that this is where our budget is going, and it's been probably the best decision I ever made. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, I appreciate just in the, in the spirit of teams, you know, conversations require a good teammate in order for that to work. And you are a fantastic teammate when it comes Yeah, I feel like we could talk all day. I feel like we're just getting started. This has been incredible. You're a great interviewer. Uh, thank you. So, oh, of course, very important things. Where can we find you? Because you're hustling and, and you, again, you're popping, but you're about to pop big. And I would love for people to be able to follow you as you go on this rocket ride of the next 10 years of your vocation. So how can you we find what? you? You know what? I tell you what, I, because I, I love this conversation, I love your podcast so much. I'll, I'll just, I've never said this publicly. I'm trying to take things to the next level, but I know you see this with your clients. I've had a lot of crushing setbacks 
So I, I'm trying to get through it. So I would love to people, people can watch this. They can join me on the journey. They can share my successes and my failures with me. So if you search for Jen Fulweiler, and that is, no one can spell this, but F-U-L-W-I-L-E-R. I am on Instagram. I'm, I am not, I'm a TikTok star. I've been getting Come all on. these new followers. Come on, on now which is hilarious. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I don't spend as much time there. So I would say if you really want to connect with me, search for Jen Fulweiler on Instagram or on TikTok, whichever one you prefer. And Jen, I'm rooting for you. And thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks. It's been an honor. Would love to do it again sometime. And you guys keep up the great work as well. You're really having an impact. And it's just an honor to be here. Ah, Thank you, Jen. All right, we have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into the hands of as many leaders as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. We drop new episodes every week, so subscribe and watch us continue to learn to create resources that serve you powerfully. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from hundreds of clients around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. If you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. To start that journey, simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You also might be listening to this and maybe you want to be a coach or maybe you already are a coach and you want to build a six or seven figure practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's www.mp, as in metaperformance.institute. And we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you'd need to create a meta-performing coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. Head on over today. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer and Jeremy Davidson as editor and audio engineer. We love working with these guys. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.